This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. As always, I am Dave Moten, the narrator and author of Mindframe, and with me is Brent Van Tassel, my producer extraordinaire and partner in crime. He is the co-founder of the Podbelly Podcast Network, of which we are a proud member. If you like podcasts, which you must if you're listening to this one, go to podbelly.com and you can find a really great directory of some other shows that you might want to listen to. As always, our primary sponsor is El Yucateco Hot Sauce. We love it, which is why we eat it, and it's why we talk about it. You can go to elyucateco.com to find anything from swag about the hot sauce to bottles if you can't find them at your local grocery store. Also, if you go to YouTube and just search for El Yucateco, they have some really great uh, videos of recipes and different ways that you can use the hot sauce. I myself am a vegan, and they've got some recipes that are just for great sauces and, and other recipes don't involve uh, meat. But regardless of your eating preferences, I think you'll find something on that YouTube channel that uh, is of interest. So go to go track, uh, track down El Yucateco on YouTube, and you can find some good stuff. Final thing that we want to talk about, uh, we recently changed our patronage uh, setup. So we wanted to be able to get more of you to get involved in the conversation uh, to, to join us in talking about things on social media. And we think that one of the ways that we're going to get that, that kind of uh, community built up is to get more people to listen to the sit down episodes. So, um, for any pledge that you make on Patreon, as little as a dollar, you can get our sit down episodes. Uh, we do one for every single regular episode of the show, myself and Brent and Zach, uh, we sit down, we ask questions, questions that Brent and Zach came up with, questions that our patrons and listeners came up with. Um, if you do go to patreon.com backslash mindframepodcast where you can uh, sign up. It's also uh, from time to time we post a call for questions. And you can also, anytime you want to, you can post questions on social media, but we talk about them on the sit downs. We wanted to make it more accessible for everybody. So for, for as little as a dollar, you can get on there and you can get the sit down episodes. It's like a whole second podcast um, about the podcast. So uh, it's a little bit meta, but we have a lot of fun recording it and we hope that you have fun uh, giving it a listen. We're coming back to another chapter about Sophie Arnez. We left off on a cliffhanger that upset Brent quite a bit where they were locked in the framing chamber and she had just put on her bizarre suit and uh, the door was opening and she was surrounded by Marines and she had no idea what to do. So she's in the middle of trying to hijack Marcellus Ball and steal him. The doors are opening and that is where we open this chapter. Chapter 26. Sophie Arnaz. 2142. The vault-like door into the framing chamber swung open. Sophie Arnez saw the Marines all standing at their posts chatting. The two closest to the door peered inside quizzically. They checked on Marcellus Ball, who was laying on his cot, just where Arnez had placed him. They glanced at Irwin and Barca with a marriage of respect and distaste on their hard faces. The lead Marine said, random framing check, clock the time, Irwin, or Barca, issued a single soothing audio tone and a pleasant green light burst. Copy that, said the other Marine. Looks green by green. Let's log it. Arnez's eyes darted from Marine to Marine. She held the odd lozenge of a weapon thrust in front of her. One of the Marines locked eyes with her, but the look was so fleeting, so casual, it reminded Arnez of what a stranger would do passing by you in a grocery store. It wasn't what a Marine should do to a woman in a hissing, inflated, plastic suit covered in tiles and stuck with massive needles holding an alien weapon and standing beside one of the most powerful framers in the human race. Oh, and the German was there too, 
sliding the vault door shut, but oddly, Arnez didn't really have time to worry about him at the moment. The door shut, and she breathed several deep breaths. It was just her and Marcellus and the droids again. And the German, she supposed. They were safe. She checked on Marcellus, though she knew it was foolish to do so. The attendants were picking up deep bio-readings of him and were designed to serve his every physical and mental need. She wanted to tuck him into the cot better than the droid had. Somebody was talking about something that didn't pertain to Arnez, so she focused on getting her suit adjusted for a bit more comfort and trying a different grip on the alien weapon so it might fit in her hand. The next stage of the plan must be starting soon. She was just waiting to hear from the German, who was in charge of the next part of the mission. She wondered where he was and when he was coming, and then remembered in some dim, inert part of her brain that he was in the same room as her and was talking directly to her right now, but that didn't answer the question about when the German would get here. Arnez heard a frantic snapping of fingers, five or six little pops in a row. The snaps were somehow full of anger, a strange emotion to be able to convey by flicking your forefinger into your palm to make a primitive noise. But the German had no shortage of ways to express his ample anger. If there was a posture, a word, a facial expression, or a way to drink a beer that could somehow convey anger at the universe and hatred of WorldGov, the German named Fry knew it. His real name was Freizetzen. Well, the name he chose as a deviant was Freizetzen. It was a German word that apparently meant liberate. Fry was a thief. A good one who had stolen everything from prototype weapons to entire capital-class ships from WorldGov with his small team. They specialized in smuggling people. Arnez was suddenly confused. The German had been here for some time, but she simply didn't care about his presence. Trying to pay attention to him was like observing the beauty of one leaf while you were walking in a scenic woods. He just didn't warrant enough mental energy to ever be noticed. He was standing there in an inflated plastic and ceramic outfit, just like hers, but his was deflating. Fry winced as he slid the large needles out of his neck, and the instant they were removed, he was fully present. He was in the room, part of reality, a real human being instead of a sub-mental ghost. Are you finally with us, Arnez? He accused, more than asked. Are you finally with us, Fry? What the hell is going on? Suddenly, oddly, Fry seemed to cut Arnez some slack. His expression went from jagged angles to a roundness, and his thin lips issued a rare smile that looked like it hurt a little in the corners. Fry was tall and thin with a bad complexion and a towhead hair, manicured in a short angled buzz. His facial features looked like they'd give you a paper cut if you caressed his cheek. But of course, you were never debriefed on the blimps, Fry asked. Excuse me? The blimps, Fry said, wiggling his arms to let his now deflated suit clack around as the tiles touched each other. Arnez realized these suits must be called blimps then. The white bits are made from this stuff, Fry said, placing his palm against the wall of the framing chamber. He paused a beat, as if he couldn't believe he was in here, and then scanned the room with his thief's eyes, looking for something else of value. There was nothing here worth taking, save Marcellus Ball. Fry continued, Framing chambers allow framers to do what they need to do on a massive scale and still protect them from crippling psychic backlash of some sort. Blimp suits do the same thing. In our case, they allow the framer who works for my little team of reprobates the chance to do what she needs to do, which is make us all invisible. Well, 
Not invisible. You could see me when I came in, as could the Marines. You just couldn't care about me. In an active blimp, we only draw about as much attention as a bird sitting on a power line or a piece of gum on the street. Nothing for your psyche to hang on to. Fry had a large satchel strapped to his torso inside the blimp suit. He adjusted his blimp to open for him and pulled out another blimp and an evac gurney. He gave Arnez the gurney and moved towards Marcellus cautiously. Fry was staring at the two floating horror shows that were the attendant droids. They were supposed to be somehow tied into Marcellus's frame. They knew, of course, nothing since they were attendant droids, but if they sensed a threat to Marcellus, they would become instantly deadly. Fry seemed unsure of what they'd think of him, what he was according to Marcellus's frame, but they seemed fine with his presence, and they apparently liked Desi because she was allowed to visit Marcellus in his chamber due to their close relationship and Admiral Katsumi Oshiro bending the rules a little bit. Arnez took the gurney. It was a six-inch cube covered in a thick black cloth that was dense and felt slick like a diving suit. Inside, it was packed with a network of black metal rods, each no bigger than a quarter of a pencil in thickness. One rod in the middle of the cube stood out of the fabric about an eighth of an inch. It was bright orange. Arnez knew how to use them as part of basic triage training for an attack on a capital naval vessel. She pushed the orange rod in and it popped back out, now an inch long. She pulled the orange rod out until it gave resistance, and she tossed the whole thing several feet away from her. As it flew to the ground, it sprung to life and unfolded into a sophisticated gurney of thin rods. The bag which it folded into had stretched into place as the supporting cloth to put a patient on. It was sturdy and strange and lightweight, and it even had small wheels made of the same rods. This device was an alien. It wasn't even beamed down, but the engineering techniques and the metals used to create it were all back-engineering side effects of things beamed down from advanced alien races to the messengers. Most new technology being developed by the human race didn't come from aliens, but came from humans finally figuring out what the aliens were up to with their original designs. By the time she had the gurney in place and checked it to make sure it properly deployed and could hold weight and roll, Fry had placed Marcellus in his own blimp suit. He had no compassion or hesitancy at the moment the huge needles needed to pierce Marcellus's skin. Fry and Arnez silently placed Marcellus on the gurney with a swift motion. Fry wheeled it to the door. The droids followed Marcellus but didn't seem to mind what was happening. Clearly, the speed with which he had draped Marcellus in the onesie showed that Fry had kidnapped people before using these blimp suits. I'm going to deploy my blimp again, Fry said, sticking one of his Frankenstein needles in his neck. I'm assuming you can handle the psychic dissonance, lest you would not have been selected for this job. I can, Arnez assured him. She found it odd that he should call it a job instead of a mission. Why do they inflate? Arnez asked. Ah, yes. The air does something to our mental state. We do not sweat in here, or even when we get nervous. Apparently the sweat leads to a specific type of anxiety, so if the air is cooled and flowing all over, calmness can be maintained. That was the theory I was told. Nobody, of course, knows. The blimp is fully beamed down. We don't know how it works, only how to make it. There's also a small pressurized canister inside that houses some sort of chemical. That may be what lets the framer make us fade away, and it may be a chemical that keeps us calm. No telling. But surely, you felt it, the calm? Arnez had. She'd been remarkably calm since donning the blimp. She was a fighter pilot, so forcing a sense of calm on herself was part of the job description. 
but this was different, external, noticeable. Let's do it, she said. Fry smiled a thin, patronizing smile as if to indicate that him looking down at her was the same thing as acknowledgement. He did the first needle in his neck and prepared to insert the second and pull on his hood. Just before he did, he said, The suits will allow us to notice each other, but only if we concentrate deeply on each other's voices or whole body. So just focus on the gurney and on Ball. You don't want to lose him. We'll push him through the NTO to an emergency personnel bay where my ship is docked. Then we'll just fly off into space and be on our way. With a little luck on the way out, of course. Arnez winced at this from the time she spent with Marcellus in the framing chamber. The life of an actor in a theater was one of superstition. You never wished anyone luck, saying instead, break a leg, as if bad luck was all you could summon as an actor. This, too, was true of angry German deviants, apparently, because on the way out, they didn't have any luck at all. Exiting the building called the Gallery for Strategic Goals was so simple that Arnez was surprised. She now knew they had a framer on their side, and she now knew that the blimp suits were supposed to make them unobservable, but she didn't appreciate their power until she was out of the framing chamber. They had left the chamber, and the eight marines fully ignored her. At the end of the hall, Fry actually asked one of them to open the secure hatch leading away from the chamber and into the CIC for the entire Echo Station. The marine was in mid-sentence, something about a match for a football league being postponed due to the low gravity issues. The Marine paused, gave his biometrics and entered his code to open the door, and continued talking about football. Arnez pushed the gurney with Marcellus on it, and the attendants happily floated above his head. She wasn't sure why the attendants were being ignored, but they were all of the same psychic mind frame category of stuff. Perhaps people were being pushed to not see them as well. Fry took point, or at least she knew he did when she decided to concentrate on him. Otherwise, he was so utterly uninteresting that she didn't even remember he was a key part of the mission. The Combat Information Center for the Naval Theater of Operations Echo was arguably one of the most secure areas in the entire World Navy. A significant portion of the naval force was rooted and commanded through this very CIC. Inside were nearly a hundred sailors and marines. The marines stood ready for invasion, the sailors sat with glowing halos above their heads, observing their stations with the keenest eye. Each and every one of them looked the other way, or at times even held doors open for Fry, Arnez, and Marcellus. Arnez knew the framers were used to coordinating massive amounts of personnel to act as one smooth unit. She never dreamed of what other uses their psychic gifts could be plied toward, until now. They walked out of the gallery for strategic goals, a large and unassuming building on the quarter of the NTO Echo Sphere that was designated as Quarter Alpha. It was home to the whole fleet's CIC and home to the entire fleet's tactical framer. Until Arnez stole him just a few minutes ago. Surrounding the building was a lovely and unassuming lawn and garden called Clausewitz Park. There was a quaint hedge maze, and when the water was on, the stream ran through surprisingly steep hills up from the park. It was a space of delicate walking bridges and wide swaths of perfectly manicured lawn. The hedges, lawn, and stream were not mere decorations, however. They were tactical. Long stretches of lawn with no cover for invaders to have to cross. A hedge maze to confuse and delay. The stream as a simple moat. The steep banks as a climbing obstacle. 
and bridges that were too small for anything but one or two attackers at a time. Arnez walked through the open air of the park. They were at a lower gravity now that the spin was decreasing. She assumed maybe 0.8 of a G or less, but still enough to jog and let the gurney push Marcellus along. There were several angry snaps just in front of Arnez's face. She only noticed them because she decided for a moment to see where Fry was. He was inches away from her, trying to get her attention. You with me? he asked, though she clearly was based on simple eye contact. Affirmative. We head east, just past the lawns where a small vehicle docking station is. There's a beltway. That's our objective. You started to jog. Don't. I know you're nervous, but you just walk. A normal walk. Don't draw attention to yourself or you risk someone seeing past the frame we're in. Liberation of the Earth is not possible without Marcellus Ball. Affirmative, she repeated, and continued to push the gurney. Fry slipped off ahead, scouting for trouble. The goal was the beltway. The beltways were travel and cargo shafts that ran through the hull of the naval theaters of operations. They led from outer space to the habitat inside. One or two were large, large enough for small gunships, but most were small enough to handle only shuttles or fighter craft. She assumed this would be one of the smallest if it was close to the gallery, the better to fend off an invasion of foot troops. Arnez realized they were really going to do this. Another 40 yards, and they would be in the beltway, and then presumably to an escape vehicle. Crossing the park ahead of them, Arnez saw two familiar faces, probably returning from a late lunch or a meeting. Colonel Dale Ridley, the head of the Marine Forces here on Echo, and Admiral Katsumi Oshiro, the head of this entire theater of war. She most recently knew them from the frame as Dale, the surly set manager, and Kat, the quirky owner of the Echo Theater. But they weren't those people at all. They were, instead, deadly, important, powerful members of the World Navy. They were enemies to Arnez, her philosophies, her allies, and all deviants. She strolled past them at a casual pace, now confident she wouldn't bring any attention to herself. And when she passed within 20 feet of these two, she suddenly heard an anachronistic siren and a screech of tires. The air grew cold, and she smelled rain. Katsumi and Dale heard it too, smelled it. They looked around, puzzled, as the internal light meant to simulate the slightly overcast Earth day popped out of existence and was replaced by a rainy night. Parts of the park were now replaced by Echo Street. The building they just left was now Marcellus's old theater, and they were all standing in the loading bay in the back alley next to the oversized backstage doors. There was an ambulance that existed in Marcellus's mind frame, parked next to a wonderful hedge sculpture that didn't. That was a 20th century American ambulance parked in a 22nd century tactical park. The worlds were somehow bleeding together. Irwin and Barca were now humans. They were both on ambulance gurneys, battered and bloodied. They were being tended by a paramedic, a purely fictitious person that didn't have a corollary in the real world. A medic was using some ancient contraption to keep Marcellus breathing by squeezing a ball strapped to his face. He was filled with bullet holes. The ground beneath was pooled with lazy rain puddles now being tainted by blood. But it was an odd ground, grass from the park she was really standing in at one moment, the blacktop of the alley behind the theater at another. Cat was wearing an expensive antique clothing unique to the 1990s, and then suddenly 
she was Admiral Oshiro, and Admiral Oshiro made eye contact with Arnez. Dale slash Colonel Ridley looked completely flummoxed by the morphing nature of reality. He'd probably never actually been inside the frame or seen the theater. Only Oshiro, Marcellus, and Arnez had been in the frame. Marcellus was old friends with Arnez, and the Admiral personally allowed her to spend 30 minutes inside the frame a couple of times a week. It was odd to let anyone inside the framing chamber, but Arnez was a recent war hero from the battle in the Kuiper Belt, and she had known Marcellus since they were teenagers. Her rank, record, and upvotes were exemplary, so obviously the Admiral thought it was a good idea. Marcellus only pushed people as a framer when they were in combat, so most of the time there was no risk of distraction if Arnez were let in, and it seemed to have positive effects on his dopamine and serotonin levels. Now, however, the Admiral, who was in a scarf and jacket again instead of a naval uniform, realized Arnez was the enemy. She realized Marcellus was really here, in Clausewitz Park, and not in his framing chamber. She drew a sidearm. The colonel followed suit, though he was too confused to aim at anyone or anything. Admiral Oshiro was still focused on Arnez. The woman's eyes were wide, and Arnez could tell she was sort of looking at nothing in order to be able to see Arnez. That's what she herself had to do in order to notice Fry. Oshiro said, Arnez, stop what you're doing and surrender. I don't know how you're doing this, nor can I fathom why, but you're never going to get off of this station. This is not a request. You have five seconds to comply. The real world and the mind frame flipped past each other as if the universe had a heartbeat. It was a clear day again, though Arnez could still smell the night's rain. The paramedic, once standing right next to her, was now a vanished phantasm. A billboard for some beverage called Zima was seen in the distance, suddenly manifesting itself as a bleed-over from Marcellus's mind frame to the real world. One of the other quarters of the station floating in the sky was now an oddly angled skyscraper in the distance. Arnez thought of her weapon. She had tucked it under Marcellus's arm so it wouldn't fall off the gurney. Plus, in the time she went for it, she'd be shot dead. Oshiro was not bluffing or playing at being tough. In exactly five seconds, or now, more like four, Arnez was going to be shot dead for attempted kidnapping. She was frozen, her hands on the gurney. She couldn't surrender. Her entire life since she was given this permit to join the Naval Academy by the Bolivar family pointed to this moment like the head of a spear. If she grabbed the weapon and fired, she might be able to outgun Admiral Oshiro. The Admiral was probably a better shot and much more willing to kill, but Arnez figured she could dip her body behind the gurney. It felt despicable, but Oshiro would hesitate to take a shot at Marcellus, her own framer, her closest ally, and most important tactical resource. A voice suddenly filled the air. It was Fry. He was suddenly noticeable, his hood removed, and one of the needles pulled from his neck. He was behind the admiral, and he said, The lamb! Look for the lamb! He held a small device in his hand. The admiral spun toward him, as did the colonel. They both raised their guns to fire at him, but they were too slow. He pushed the button on his device. It was a detonator for some sort of weapon. A perfect sphere of white-hot flame burned with fry as the center of the star. The burn lasted only for a second, a flash, an irised image floating in Arnez's eyes. The negative of three ghostly silhouettes slowly vanished on the dark insides of her closed eyelids. When she opened them, there was a small fire burning in the park, 
and fire suppression systems were sounding alarms and instantly battling the flames. Several officers were running in that direction, and the mind frame was no longer trying to appear. Reality was back. Arnez focused on Marcellus. He lay sleeping on the gurney. The whole thing must have been triggered by his proximity to Admiral Oshiro, to Kat, his friend and director. But now she was dead, beyond dead, incinerated by the intensive device Fry set off. Fry, Ridley, and Oshiro were gone. Arnez summoned all of her pilots steel and walked toward the beltway. She, of course, met no resistance. She, Marcellus, and the attendants were completely ignored, especially now that everyone was responding to the conflagration in the park. At the beltway, she found a few options. One was for light cargo and the other for personnel. She boarded the rapid people mover, a tube of pressurized gas that shot a 12-person pod at just under the speed of sound. In about one second, Arnez was now outside of the NTO Echo and free-floating in space. Free but for the fact that she had no idea what was next other than eventual arrest. Once in the zero-g of true outer space, and once free of the tube and on its own, the pod steered itself with pre-programmed auto-thrusters. It was heading to a safe traffic distance away from the hull where other ships may need to use the beltway tubes. Arnez started to strap Marcellus down on the pod, but she saw the attendants doing it for her. She kicked off and landed in the pilot seat. As she pulled off her mask and removed the needles from her neck, the blimp suit deflated. She strapped herself in for zero-g piloting, and she was amazed at how good it felt to suddenly be doing something she was trained for. Once she and Marcellus were both in place, her mind was allowed to fully ponder what the next step of the plan was. The compartmentalization certainly kept the deviants all safe in case one got busted, but in this case, all it meant was she was going to get busted. She checked her wrist for more clues on her melanin, but there was nothing there. Look for the lamb, Fry had screamed, which made little sense then, and even less out here in the darkness of space. Hovering outside of the NTO's shell. There was nothing out here but a few pods like hers and four docked vehicles. Two were small cargo haulers, and two were medical transports. Out of pure training, she did several things upon buckling into the pod's small flight seat. First, she ran a diagnostic on all systems. Everything was five by five. Second, she did a ping to find all nearby vehicles. A list spawned on a screen as transponders talked to each other. The medical transport vehicle Christian Bernard and MTV Lane Claypon were the names of the medical transports. The light cargo hauler Raipur and the LCH Lamb Tim were the cargo haulers. She had heard Fry wrong. It wasn't look for the lamb as in an animal, it was look for the lamb as in the ship Lamb Tin. She used the small thrusters on the pod to steer herself and Marcellus toward the Lamb Tin. The ship initiated automated docking procedures with her pod before she was even in range. At least she was expected. She used the pod's rudimentary sensors to look for chase vehicles, but she may as well have been blind in this thing. Though Sophie Arnez had no idea who would be inside, she had at least found her lamb. So with that, Sophie Arnez is free of the confines of Naval Theater of Operations Echo, even though she has no idea uh, who or what comes next. So keep giving us a listen and we'll come back around to her and you'll see what is next in her arc of the storyline. 
So if you like the stories that you're reading, you can go and find us on mindframepodcast.com. And if you look in the merchandise shop, you can find everything from t-shirts and coffee mugs and socks to uh, the books that I've written or the book that I've written that's on there, as well as the books that Zach Smith has written. But you can find that on our merch shop. And as always, we are a proud member of the Podbelly Podcast Network. We are a Podbelly original. And if you go there, you can check out some other great podcasts such as Robots for Eyes, which is a pretty, I'm going to say, irascible take on different research uh, topics that they look into. They're from the UK. It's it's a really good show with some really great accents. And uh, at, at least there's Coffee, which is a very American show, which is also a very irascible take on research topics, but done with American accents. But they're both good shows. Uh, check them out by going to podbelly.com and you can look at the directory to find some good stuff. If you like us, if uh, you want to support us, two really great ways. One great way, as I mentioned at the top of the show, go to my uh, patreon.com slash mindframe podcast. Little as a dollar, you get the, the bonus episodes, uh, which are all sit downs where we talk about this week's episode. But another way that's free for you is to simply like and share and post on social media. That sort of organic um, engagement is what everybody looks for in a podcast. That's the thing that can't be duplicated. You can throw all kinds of advertising money at Facebook and Instagram, and it just doesn't have the impact of someone genuinely sharing a post. So if you want to find us on social media at Facebook, we are at the Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, we are Mindframe Podcast. And on Instagram, we are The Mindframe Podcast. So give us a share, give us a like, give us some love, give us a retweet. Uh, it goes a long way, and we really appreciate it. So thank you for listening. We'll see you on our next episode. And as always, never forget the Lariat is closing. <laughs>